in his autobiography, John Payton writes of the opposition that he encountered when he volunteered to go as a missionary to the island of the New Hebrides. He writes the following. Even Dr. Symington, one of my professors in divinity, and the beloved minister in connection with those whose congregation I had wrought so long as a city missionary, repeatedly urged me to remain at home. He argued that I was leaving certainty for uncertainty, work in which God had made me greatly useful for work in which I might fail to be useful and only throw my wife away among cannibals. I replied, My mind was finally resolved that though I loved my work and my people, yet I felt that I could leave them to the care of Jesus, who would soon provide them a better pastor than I, and that with regard to my life amongst the cannibals, as I had only once to die, I was content to leave the time and place and means in the hands of God, who had already marvelously preserved me when visiting cholera patients and the fever-stricken poor, on that score, I had positively no further concern, having left it all absolutely to the Lord, whom I sought to serve and honor, whether in life or death. Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Amen. Where does a guy get that? Where does that agonizing, risk-taking joy come from? How's it John Payton made? John Paytons are made by Revelation 11. That's how John Paytons are made. So this morning we're going to consider Revelation 11 and a sermon I've entitled Winning the World Through Witness. This whole chapter is motivation for a suffering, persecuted church to give their lives to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, just before we dive into 11, let's catch ourselves up, because we're approaching the halfway point in the book, and I know we get disoriented hearing these visions week in and week out. Where are we? What's going on here? So let me catch us up. Remember in chapters 1 through 3, there's a vision of Jesus and the letters to the seven churches. Chapters 4 and 5 is John's first major vision of God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer. And then out of those major visions of God and Christ, we are given a series of three judgments, three series of judgments, which are really patterned after the plagues in Egypt. So remember the plagues in Egypt have three series of judgments? Well, the book of Revelation follows that pattern, and it takes the form of seals, trumpets, and bowls. Those are the three cycles of judgment that John is led to see. In chapter 6, we get the first of the six seals. And then in chapter 7, we meet an interlude. An interlude that encourages the church that in the midst of these temporal judgments being poured out, that God will preserve and protect them. Then in chapter 8, the seals come to an end and the trumpets begin. In chapter 8, we see 
the first four trumpets, and then in chapter 9, we are given the next two. And then in chapter 10, we start another interlude. Just as the seals had an interlude in chapter 7, so the trumpets have an interlude between the 6th and the 7th in the form of chapter 10 and 11. We considered last week the first part of that interlude where John took this scroll and was told to eat it, symbolically ingesting it so that he might proclaim it. And then in chapter 11, we are told this morning that during this interim period, while these judgments, temporary judgments on sin are being poured out, that our responsibility is the church to join John in that mission of proclamation. That it's not just him and him alone who's to eat the scroll, we're to eat it and we're to proclaim it. That the responsibility has not just been given to the apostles and prophets to proclaim the word of God, but the church to proclaim the word of God as well. In fact, prophet or prophecy is used over and over again in Revelations 10 and 11, verse 7 of chapter 10, verse 11 of chapter 10, and then four times in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 3, verse 6, verse 10, and verse 18, all talk about prophesying, preaching, proclaiming. So this emphasis on prophets and prophesying highlights the role of God's people in the midst of the judgments. In the middle of these temporal judgments that are coming on the world, what are we supposed to do as God's people? Yes, Revelation 7 encouraged us, we're sealed, we're safe, we're secure. But we're not just supposed to sit around in our house thanking God that Jesus saved us. We have a mission that we're on together. And our mission is to speak God's word to the world. That's why the church is here. Now remember that to prophesy is not just to make announcements about the future, although it includes that, but to prophesy is to proclaim the truth in light of what's coming in the future. And I think this is why John uses the language of two witnesses in Revelation 11. Some people view these two witnesses as two physical people, either in the past or in the present. But I think based on the symbolic interpretation of Revelation that apocalyptic literature demands, we don't take any numbers literally. We take them symbolically. Therefore, remember last week, what was done prior to John ingesting the scroll? Remember, an angel took an oath, right? And what is important there is that they are swearing, he's swearing to the truthfulness of what is contained in the scroll and what's to be proclaimed. So the two witnesses, I believe, is symbolic of the entire church, that just as the Bible requires two witnesses to settle the truthfulness of a matter, and we saw it began with an oath, there's an oath and there's two witnesses to verify it, what's being communicated here is the role of the church in proclaiming and propagating God's truth to the world. So the picture that we've seen throughout Revelation, and all of Scripture for that matter, is that every follower of Jesus Christ in the church is a responsible to take the word of God and speak it. This is why the Spirit of God is in us, brothers and sisters. No longer, like we had in the Old Testament, is the Spirit in a few prophets. But according to Joel 2 and Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is upon all of God's people for the purpose of proclaiming all of God's word. This is the primary function of the church, to witness to the world. And that's the primary thrust of Revelation, that as the Bible ends, our mission doesn't yet. 
that as long as we live in this body, on this earth, we are compelled by the love of Christ to proclaim Christ to all, even if it costs us our lives. Every follower of Christ, without exception, has been given the Spirit of Christ to testify to the gospel of Christ. It's not just for first century Christians. It's not just for John. It's not just for the first seven churches. It's for you and me. We are witnesses in a world that's under the judgment of God, and we fearlessly are called to proclaim God's gospel of grace to all. That's what Revelation 11 is about. So Revelation 11, as we dive in this morning, I've got 11 helps to preach the gospel. Because I know preaching the gospel and probably prayer are the two kind of Achilles heels in the life of the church. We struggle to pray, we struggle to proclaim. And so what I want to do is give us 11 encouragements to proclaim the gospel fearlessly. Now don't panic. I know you're panicking. 11 point sermon? Pastor Mark, I got lunch. Have no fear, lunch is near. But I know that an 11 point sermon can send a shot of panic among the godliest of us here this morning. So have no fear, we're going to tick them off really quickly. But I hope that the overwhelming sense will just be, wow, we have more than enough motivation to communicate the gospel. Why am I timid? Why am I fearful? Why don't I care? And that the Lord will use this to motivate us to that end. So let's dive in. Number one, our lives are protected. Our lives are protected. Now we've seen this in Revelation 7, but John emphasizes it again here in Revelation 11, which again ties these visions together and helps us understand how we're supposed to read Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, Then I was given a measuring line, or measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now the background of this. Remember, anytime we come to the book of Revelation and we read a verse and we're introduced to a concept we don't understand, we don't go, where's that on the news? Bad hermeneutic. Don't go forward. Go backward. You ask, where's this in the Old Testament? And the answer would be Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah 2, in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1, a man appears, quote, with a measuring line in his hand. The exact same phrase is used in Revelation 11 here. And he has come, according to Zechariah 2, to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and long it is. Now, why? Zechariah 2 verse 5 says, For I will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. God is saying, measure it, because I want you to know I'm with my people. I'm there as a wall of fire protecting them in their midst. So John here is told to measure the temple of God like Zechariah was in his day, because God intends to dwell there. John's measuring the temple here seems to communicate the Lord's eternal protection of his sons and daughters, just like it communicated in Zechariah's day. We, the church, are the only temple in which God will ever dwell. God will never dwell in another physical temple. He will only dwell in, well, I take that back. He will dwell in another physical temple. It's called the earth. He will dwell here again, and this earth will become the temple of our living God. But Until that point, we are the temple of the living God, right? The church is. 
So many texts in the New Testament. I don't have time to turn us all to them, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. 1 Peter 2, 5. Ephesians 2, 22. All emphasize the reality that the church is the temple of the living God. But remember in Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, the church is also called there the pillar in the temple of God. So the measuring of the temple has nothing to do with trying to figure out its size or its weight or its height or its width. To measure is speaking of the spiritual protection of God's people against God's coming wrath, and not from, but not from physical persecution or martyrdom. That's to be expected, as we'll see in just a minute, but rather the spiritual preservation. So John is not measuring off a physical temple, but a spiritual temple, his church, And God is promising to be with his church as they witness, to protect them and to provide for them. He will never leave them. He will never forsake them. They will always and ultimately be safe and secure in him. The church has no reason to fear. That's point number one. Point number two, our suffering is expected. As I just said, God's protection of his people does not mean we won't suffer. It means we won't incur his wrath. Look at verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. You'll notice in Revelation chapter 11, too, that the outer court of the temple, which was the court of the Gentiles, is left vulnerable and is open to being trampled so that while our lives are secure as God's people, our suffering is expected. We are living side by side with people who hate God. The church is spiritually protected from God's wrath, which is the inner sanctuary, but but we are physically oppressed by pagan forces pictured here as in the outer court. According to this view, Revelation views the people of God as members of God's new covenant temple, and yet we are vulnerable to spiritual attack. Now, what about this 42 months language? This 42 months, which is also referred to as 1,260 days or three and a half years, it's all the same period of time, was prophesied back in Daniel and is now signified here in Revelation as a time of tribulation in which God's people experience suffering and persecution as his witnesses in the world. While some view this as a literal three and a half year period of time of tribulation, But in light of understanding these witnesses as the church, symbolically, this seems to be a symbolic portrayal of a time of suffering that the church will endure before the final judgment. So the witnesses reflect Christ, remember, who for three and a half years suffered in his testimony to the word of God, which again was patterned after the ministry of Elijah, which lasted three and a half years as well. So it's a symbolic reference of just as Christ was persecuted during his earthly life, so you will be as well. Our suffering is expected. And it's good. How does that motivate us? Because it shouldn't cause us to stop preaching the gospel when we experience hostility to the gospel. We need to know that not everybody we preach the gospel to, in fact, I think biblically, the vast majority of the people that we speak the gospel to will not believe it. So we need to be okay with that and comfortable with that and expect that because that's, that will help us to continue to proclaim because the tendency is, well, it doesn't do any good. Why am I proclaiming it? Well, we're in it first for the glory of God. We're in it first because Christ is worthy. We're in it first because Christ is worthy to be known. 
whether he's rejected or not. Now, obviously, we don't want that. We want people to embrace Christ, but we need to recognize that that won't always be the case. So, one, our lives are protected. Two, our suffering expected. Three, our responsibility is still proclamation. Verse three, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So again, the 1,260 days is the same as the three and a half years, is the same as the 42 months. It's all the same period of time, referring to the time period of this life between Christ's first and second coming. Now, our lives are secure, our suffering's expected, but our task hasn't changed. We read here of the two witnesses that I've already argued is symbolic for the church, but notice what they do. They speak. You and I know how things are going to end in the future. You and I know that this has huge implications for our lives and the lives of every single person around us on the planet, so we don't stay silent. Brothers and sisters, this is why we're here. Verse 3 is why we're here. Jesus has given us authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I'm giving that authority to you. And then when they're in, in Acts chapter 1, as they're eager to get going, Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, but the Holy Spirit will come and will give them power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the end of the earth. So you know that the people you live with, the people you go to school with, people you work with, will all stand before the judgment seat of God one day soon. And God has put you in their lives as a witness to proclaim his truth, the good news of the day of his mercy in Christ, of the grace offered to all who will receive it and repent of sin and run to him. And our task is to tell them. This pictures of witnesses in verse 3 clothed in sackcloth represents the message that we proclaim. It, it's taking the language of the Old Testament prophets that often walked about in sackcloth because their message wasn't all rosy all the time. There was an element of judgment attached to it. And just like we saw with, the, with John, the reminder from the angel last week that the, the scroll was both bitter and sweet, so this sackcloth is communicating that idea. We have glorious good news to proclaim that no one wants to hear because it involves sin and wrath and judgment. Who wants to talk about that at the dinner table? And that is sad because God's judgment on sin will cause mourning and weeping, but it's sweet because... It speaks of the mercy of God to save us. So, the other students that are in your classroom, young people, or on your campuses, or families in your neighborhoods, or among your friends and your coworkers, make the gospel message clear with your mouth. God is a coming king, a righteous judge, and a merciful Lord, and he will save all who turn from their sin and trust him. When was the last time you told somebody that? Would you pray even now that God would use you this week to tell somebody that? May he encourage us to do that. Number four, our light is unquenchable. Our light is unquenchable. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The lamp stands. 
shining. Remember who the lampstands are? The church, right? Chapter 1, verse 20. This is also a reference, though, to Zechariah chapter 4, specifically the reference to the two olive trees. We've already seen a reference to Zechariah earlier. John is operating in the book of Zechariah as he's interpreting these visions and seeing what, he, seeing what he's seeing. He's saying, oh, I remember reading that in Zechariah. And here's what... In Zechariah 4, there's a priest and a king discussed, referring to Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the king. And we are now, as God's people, called to serve him as a kingdom of priests making known his gospel. The church now fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king to the world alongside Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we're here. We're chosen, we're ransomed, we're redeemed to proclaim God's excellencies. Now, what about this olive tree imagery? I think what's being communicated here is the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the church. Why do I say that? Well, not only because olive oil was often associated with anointing, and anointing is associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but because Zechariah 4 makes it clear. Here's what Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 6 says. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it, and there are two olive trees. See where he's getting this imagery from? This is coming right out of Zechariah 4. There are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, another on, the le- on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but my, my spirit says the Lord. So there's your encouragement. It's not by your might. It's not by your power. It's by God's Spirit that He works in and through the proclamation of the gospel. The Spirit is the one who makes all the difference. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have all the questions. You don't have to know everything. The Spirit is the one who makes the difference. He is the one who makes the church powerful. Not personality, not money. Not political influence, not marketing gimmicks. The church's power is in the sun-centered, father-protected, spirit-empowered gospel. And that's what's meant to be encouraging here. Our light is unquenchable because the spirit is the one who is empowering the proclamation of the gospel. And he is the one who's pouring his oil into the lampstands to keep us burning. We need to rely upon the Holy Spirit if we're going to have any success in proclaiming the gospel. Point number five, our souls are untouchable. Our souls are untouchable. Verse five, and if anyone would harm them, talking about God's people, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. This is a reference to Jeremiah chapter five, verse 14, where we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth as a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So what's he saying here? Talk about divine protection. 
talk about power. Talk about protection against demonic forces. Christians who comprise the church will undoubtedly suffer harm, be on the other end of threats, be politically oppressed or harassed, but they will be spiritually protected. Nothing can threaten our eternal relationship with God. They can. They might kill the body, but they cannot kill our soul. And as a result of that, our souls are untouchable. The fire that would consume the enemies of God will never consume the children of God. Sixthly, our power is invincible. Look at verse 6. They have the power, that is these two witnesses, the church, to shut the sky that no rain... Now again, this is, this is referring symbolically, so don't, don't go out there and say, if I preach the gospel, it won't rain tomorrow. That's not what it's talking about. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague and often as they desire. What's he saying? Remember Moses? Remember Elijah? Same God's with you. That's the point. Your power is like their power. It's an allusion to Elijah, who spoke the word of God, who prayed and shut up the heavens from rain. And James picks up on that in James chapter 5 and used that as a motivation to pray. Listen, just like Elijah prayed, we can pray too. And God will do great things through our prayers, just like he did great things through Elijah's prayers. And just as Moses preached the gospel, preached the word of God, preached the judgment of God in the midst of a hostile Pharaoh where all the armies of Egypt were arranged against him, nevertheless, the plagues fell on Egypt and God's people were delivered. So the same spirit that fills you and encourages you and motivates you, his power is invincible. And therefore, our power is invincible. The light's unquenchable, the souls are untouchable, the power's invincible because it's all coming from the word and spirit of God. But what if they kill us? And that's where we pick up. Number seven, our death is temporary. Look at verse seven. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast, we'll hear more about him in the next several weeks, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, obviously talking about Satan, the devil, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, we'll pick up there in a second. Things take a turn for the worse in verse 7. As John describes how our days of proclaiming the gospel as the church will come to an end, John describes how the two witnesses will eventually be struck down This could be a specific reference, as some see it, to some literal martyrdom that will take place later for proclaiming the gospel. But I'm more inclined to see it as the pattern of gospel proclamation in this age that Jesus said, some of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. For until Jesus returns, 
all of us who take upon ourselves the responsibility and privilege of proclaiming the eternal message of the gospel open ourselves up to the very real possibility that it will lead to our demise. Say, maybe not in the United States. Well, maybe not now, right? And certainly not true for the vast majority of our brothers and sisters who are living in difficult places all around the world. But nonetheless, for the history of the church, this has been the case. And notice how the people the world of the world rejoice in the death of Christians. The picture is of a worldly people who laugh at how professing Christians lived and died. Look at these pitiful people. Those who have rejected God's mercy will one day think for a minute, see, told you so, told you so. Look at them, dead, bleeding. Gospel's done, no hope. Look at these Christians. They proclaim the judgment of God on us. Look what happened to them. We judge them. We'll show you. So we're reminded that as we testify to the gospel, as lampstands filled with God's spirit, many will reject the message. Many will be infuriated with the gospel that we proclaim. Some will be put to death, and our demise will be celebrated. Anytime the culture wins against the church, there will be book deals and interviews on all the news outlets celebrating the renouncement of the Christian faith. But all Christians will be vindicated by God and the judgment will fall on those who refuse to repent. Look at verse 11 as we come to our next point, number eight, our resurrection is certain. Verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of God, breath, breath of life from God, it's almost like Genesis 1, entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. It's a symbolic picture of resurrection. At a time that seems to symbolically represent Jesus three days in the tomb, we will rise as his witnesses and God will vindicate us and our testimony. The background here is Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones and the breath of God coming and raising them to spiritual life. Our death will be temporary, but our resurrection is sure. We will rise to meet our Lord as he rains down ultimate and final judgment on the earth. And so we are assured that our resurrection is certain. Three more. Number nine, our mission will be complete. Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. This is now picturing the seventh trumpet, the final judgment coming. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is to come. Then, verse 15, the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. See, he's coming to take over this world that was once his and still is. He's reclaiming it. And the 24 elders, verse 16, who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God. So four things are said to occur. First, there's a great earthquake. Second, a tenth of the city falls. Third, 7,000 people are killed in the earthquake. And finally, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the Father in heaven. 
Now the question is whether this terror or fear and the subsequent glorifying of God that is said of these people describes an expression of saving repentance and faith in the God of heaven. And I believe it does. Almost identical terminology occurs in Revelation 14.7, fear God and give him glory, and Revelation 15.4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And both of these texts have in view saving fear of God and acknowledgement of him. We should take note in Revelation 16.9 where the unrepentant are described in these terms. They did not repent or give God glory. So I take it to give God glory means you do repent. And to give God glory in Revelation, that phrase always refers positively to a saving response of people on the part of or saving response to the gospel on the part of the people. Revelation 4, 9, 14, 7, 16, 9, 19, 7. All refer to positive responses to the gospel. Now, perhaps the number one-tenth and 7,000 indicate that the conversion portrayed here is of the vast majority of the lost and not a paltry few. That's to say, there is in the events of Revelation 11 through 13 an indication that prior to the final judgment of God, there will be an outpouring of his grace where the vast majority of people on the earth at that time, or at least a large global harvest, will be saved. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God's judgment typically falls on the vast majority of people and only a tiny remnant is saved or delivered. That remnant is often described as only a tenth, like Amos 5.3. The figure 7,000 alludes more specifically to Elijah's ministry to bring about the judgment of all except the 7,000 Israelites that did not bow the knee to Baal in 1 Kings 19. But look, John here in verse 13 reverses the arithmetic. It's typically a small number whom God saves and a large percentage that God judges. But here in Revelation eleven thirteen, it's a small percentage that God judges and a vast larger percentage that he saves. So if only a tenth of the city falls under judgment... Nine-tenths of the city fears God, repents, and gives him glory. If only 7,000 are killed in the judgment of the earthquake and the rest fear God and give him glory, it would seem as if John is describing a vast global harvest of souls coming into the kingdom at the end of the age. Now, whether that's the case, I don't know. I think there's good exegetical ground for thinking that. But regardless, we know that at the end, there's going to be a great multitude that no man can number, save from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's going to be overwhelming the amount of people that Jesus saved. And it will thrill our hearts. But I want you to notice that what the temporal judgments could not do, remember the end of chapter 9? In spite of all these judgments, like Pharaoh, all the judgments kept coming, but they refused to repent. But the gospel produced it. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel produces the repentance. Signs, wonders, judgments will not do it. The gospel will do it. One day, brothers and sisters, our mission will be complete. The task of witnessing in this world will be done. And just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Witnessing one day will be no more, and it will give way to worship, which leads us to our point number 10. Our God will be glorified. Our God will be glorified. Look at verse 17. And the 24 elders 
who sat on their faces saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. There again, saving fear. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. One day, God will set history right. God won't be belittled. God won't be ignored. God will be central. Listen to how the angels start. Over and over again, up to this point in Revelation, we've seen God glorified as the one who is, and who was, and who what? Is to come. But here, he's glorified as the one who has come. He's not just the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's the one who is and was and has come. He's glorified as the one who fully and finally has asserted his reign and his kingdom rules over all. Today, we worship God as the one who is and who was and who is to come. But on that day, never again will those words come out of our mouths. For he will have come. And we will behold his majesty will one day be glorified, God will be glorified for his judgment and his salvation. His just judgments will be final, his servants will be rewarded, and all who have trusted in God through Christ will receive the reward of our king and his kingdom and the inheritance of our heavenly father. God's judgments will be final, God's servants will be rewarded, his enemies will be destroyed, God will be glorified and will be worshipped. Praise God that that day is coming. Finally, verse 11, we will be welcomed into God's presence. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven, the church, well, this is picturing his, the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, heavy hail. This is God's coming down to dwell in his temple, just as he did when we see in the book of Exodus with the tabernacle, and then later when the temple is, physical temple is built. But as John closes this chapter with the image of heaven opened and the Ark of the Covenant with the people, symbolizing the mercy seat of God, that God's mercy has come, where God's people can rest once and for all in his presence by the blood of Jesus, this is where God will welcome us in. One day we will behold his majesty, and on that day we will be welcomed by God's mercy. Doesn't this whole story compel you to want to share the gospel? This is, this is reality, brothers and sisters. This is what's really going on. May God grant us grace this week, and next week, next month, next year, if God gives us life till the end of our days, to make it a high priority and premium to preach and witness to this God and his coming kingdom, offering grace to all who would repent and turn and enter this kingdom. This is our calling now. Payday's coming someday. But that bill can be paid in this life by Jesus Christ for all those who turn from sin. So if you're here this morning and you've yet to embrace Christ, now is the day of salvation for you. No more delay. This is the whole point of the universe. Get on the, get on the right side of history because this is coming and Christ will one day return. And by then, it'll be too late. But today not too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being a part of the church of the living God. 
the pillar and buttress of the truth. The temple that God is building that will be filled, that will one day fill the entire earth, that right now is expanding as new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are being brought in through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in our, we are so grateful that, that, that even though Christ is the only way, he is offered to everyone. Lord, that even though there is a narrow way, there is a broad invitation to come to that narrow way. It's not limited to anyone except those who view coming to Christ as beneath them. Lord, we are so grateful to be a part of these two witnesses. We are so grateful to be given this calling. We want to fulfill it faithfully. So empower us by your Spirit to be proclaimers of your gospel, to not be silent about our allegiance to Jesus, but to publicly acknowledge him before men so that we will one day be publicly acknowledged by Jesus but to his Father in heaven. Lord, make us bold, loving, courageous, servant-hearted, patient, kind proclaimers of your gospel. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.